big sky, big potential. This is Eastern Promise. Welcome to episode 66 of Eastern Promise, where this week we've smashed together particles of potential and atoms of excellence to showcase the very best of the East of England. This week, Mayor of the Cambridgeshire and Peterborough Combined Authority, Dr Nick Johnson, tells us more about his six-district challenge. Then Jonathan Reynolds, MD of Norwich-based Opogee Group, tells us how geography, meteorology and opportunity make Norfolk and Suffolk peerless providers of clean energy. And we close in on the first Cambridge Wide Open Day. And finally, I asked who you'd like to hear as a guest on Eastern Promise, and you told me it's time for a self-referential bit of crowd sorcery. As part of the Campaign for Better Transport's 50th anniversary celebrations, they have declared this week, the 12th to the 18th of June, to be Better Transport Week. Dr Nick Johnson, the elected mayor for the Cambridgeshire and Peterborough Combined Authority, and therefore the elected representative with far and away the largest constituency in the east of England, has set himself the Six District Challenge. What is this challenge? Why? To visit the six districts of his mayoralty. Fenland, Huntingdonshire, East Cambridgeshire, South Cambridgeshire and the cities of Cambridge and Peterborough, using only public transport or active travel. I caught up with Dr Johnson and joined him as he made the short hop from the city of Cambridge into South Cambridgeshire. Here we are just... Uh, a bit away from Foxton Railway Station in South Cambridgeshire and I have caught up literally and figuratively with Dr Nick Johnson Mayor of the Combined Authority for Cambridgeshire and Peterborough Dr Johnson, today is your six districts challenge which sounds, and you are very well along the way of having completed it could you sort of tell our listeners uh, what is the six district challenge and why you're undertaking it today? Well, it's, it's an idea that came up from staff within the Combined Authority um, here in Cambridge from Peterborough. The Combined Authority is made up of constituent authorities. From the north, that's our obviously Fenland and Peterborough City Council, and down here where we are at the moment in the south, South Cambridgeshire, with a few in between. We, we've not made Huntingdonshire yet, but we have, have visited East Cambridgeshire and we've been through Cambridge City. So the idea was to demonstrate, because it's better transport week, that uh, public transport is a good alternative, um, as indeed is active, uh, active travel, you know, using the power of walking and cycling. And how much could we achieve, uh, or how much could I achieve, uh, with the support here of the staff, and uh, get around the county? And actually, also, 
use it as an opportunity to listen to the people along the way to and actually experience i mean i do use buses myself anyway mm. but I, today you know using public transport we've already maybe one of the reasons you caught up with us because we had a delay yes, on the train the you know. reason I caught you, so, yeah. so, so, so well done uh, signal failure on that one but we're here now we're in the middle of south cambridgeshire um, in foxton and you know we've got, now got to wait about an hour for a bus now sometimes you don't want to wait that long but if you do have to wait that long it, you, what you need is regular updates you need good quality bus stops bus shelters and you also need the information either at your fingertips or provided in a way that you can consume it um, also we, we become aware of some of the costs at the moment we have the benefit of two pound bus fares uh, for most journeys not all um, makes it more affordable but you know you have to balance that up about the general expectation that a lot of people well we can hear it now people using cars yeah we want to try and move people for the better of many reasons um into using public transport more so you've you've kind of acquainting yourself with the challenges that uh, your constituents face in using public transport what are the so far today what are the main lessons you've taken away and and i sort of ask you to sort of perhaps reflect on how how you think you're going to approach those going forward in some ways, public transport is fun. I mean, whilst I've been doing it, I've been very uh, energetic in trying to, you know, highlight some of the benefits by using social media. Now, if I was in a car, I wouldn't be using social media. I wouldn't be texting, you know, quite rightly. So sometimes letting other people take the strain, that's fun. But it's a strange one in this because I'm doing this as part of a, a, almost like an experience. I'm not commuting. And so when you put an overlay of a, I need to be at a certain place in a certain time, I could see how that could be frustrating. For instance, knowing that we want to come here where we are in Foxton at the moment, but at the same time, the train being delayed was starting to make me feel a little bit concerned. So again, it's about that reliability. Um, I've also found out about ticketing. You know, I have so many different tickets that I bought along. Wouldn't it be easy? And one of the things that we want to do at the Combined Authority is having one ticket, you know, where you can travel around. You know, we all know the experience that you've got in very different experience of using sort of an Oyster card in, in London where you have a and that, that covers a whole area and you can just move around one single price I, I know when i sort of start adding up all the costs for me moving around cambridge and peter's day you'll be significant and then that's a challenge you know do we, you want to move people on to using public transport but then this the, if the pushback is but it's too expensive particularly if you're taking a family around it's just me on doing it on myself today but if i had to then pay for you know other children or another partner it becomes uh, it puts you off using public transport and we we desperately need to get back to a day where public transport is a viable alternative for all of us and in, in, in indeed it's the one that we choose it can be fun that's what i've learned as the mayor what powers are within your hands what levers can you pull to actually do things like unify the ticketing uh, in a more coherent way uh, is, is and is that the case of using technology for a single app or for example or uh, just just really interested in what what you what you can do without recourse to having to to, to uh, refer to anyone else particularly in whitehall very simply we are in the lucky position, I would say, of being a combined authority area for Cambridge and Peterborough. So that gives, within that um, level of local politics, above you know, your county councils, your city councils, your district councils, you have, within the mayoral role, the opportunity to explore proper bus service reform. And that's what we're doing at the combined authority. We are moving through a process of assessment, putting together a business case, looking at either enhanced partnerships or, indeed, 
franchising. There's no secret that as a mayor, uh, well, as wanting to become a mayor, I campaigned for franchising. But that has to stack up. That has to go in front of uh, a business case that's to be made, and that has to go through proper analysis. But at the same time as we're doing that, you know, a push for franchising or enhanced partnership, we're looking at um, a whole process of a bus network review, you know, taking ownership and looking at real challenging the, the, the kind of patronage of buses and then saying, well, look, it's well recognised. In fact, only just over a year ago, we were in the unenviable position of an operator locally deciding they were not willing to continue uh, running bus routes. And, you know, that was a challenge. But we put it out to tender and we found that there were other bus operators who were then keen to come in. And we obviously they're, they're the actual... Uh, the, the amounts and how much subsidising is, is not, it's not a, on public record, but it, it's a sort of say, it's gone in the direction where we want to kind of move along from just saying, is this value for money in terms of subsidy? We know what else does the bus network do? It was quite clear that um, as bus services were being threatened, the, uh, there was never so much coming in terms of the mayoral office about, please save our bus route. It gets me to school. It gets me to education. I'll have to change my job if there is no bus running mm. through the. And, th and then on top of everything else, it's this thing that it's. Uh, I, we have a national health service. You know what we need is a national public transport service. Mm. You know it was deregulated back in the 80s, and I think that was a, a major failure in the past. And what we're trying to do in reverse. And interestingly, across the, um, the political divides, it, there is a real keenness to kind of bring a narrative where public transport is viable and it delivers not just about value for money, but also in terms of economic benefit, social benefit. A simple example would be. Rural isolation leads to issues of uh, loneliness. If people can't get out and about to the shops, they're not integrating. So there's, there's so many, many reasons that we need a, a proper, integrated, safe, reliable, affordable public transport system. And having that access, particularly to improving the bus network, is very much part of what we're doing. Um, and public transport is also very important for the drive towards net zero and, and carbon reduction. I and mean, I know that's something you're also very interested in. Um, what can we do in terms of... I'll, I'll, I'll cut this bit out because I, I had the question in my mind a second ago and now, ironically, the th train of thought has left the station again without me on it. Um, so uh, decarbonising transport. Cambridge is, is notoriously quite a difficult city to park in or an expensive yeah. city to park in. Uh, and there's a, there's, a, there's a very good reason for that. But on the same token, it's very easy to access by rail. How important do you think to, to what you're trying to do is that decarbonisation agenda and uh, making basically Cambridgeshire a cleaner and a greener place, encouraging people to use cars less and making public transport uh, more accessible? Um, well, I mean, we are making inroads into that within the last uh, couple of months with the benefit of working with operators, in this case Stagecoach, and with government funding. We have introduced, I think it's 30 um, zero emission buses, you know, so, you know, th th that immediately takes away from that kind of expectation that buses are idling with lots of diesel fumes coming out of the exhaust. If you've got electric buses with the infrastructure, something that we're obviously pushing with alongside colleagues at Peterborough City Council, we want to move on electrification of the feet. And, and, and let's not stop at that. There's opportunities, particularly in the north area, where we've talked about uh, the concept of the hydrogen valley, which is where, and if you look at analogies where, uh, similar, similarities sort of analogies, in the northwest with Steve uh, Rotherham, the mayor of Liverpool, there's a, there's a hydrogen-fuelled bus fleet. 
So it's about the infrastructure, looking at where you can have an opportunity to introduce, particularly around the buses, either electric buses or hydrogen fueled buses. And, uh, and, and of course, you mentioned obviously Cambridgeshire with the, um, with the news about the East West Rail. It absolutely has to be an electrified um, elect, uh, um, rail line coming into the centre of Cambridge. What sense would it be to deliver a railway which then starts bringing in diesel trains with, with all the <laughs> inherent fumes with that? We have to have electrification of the East West Rail if it goes ahead. So tomorrow morning you're back in your office uh, on the back of the six districts ch uh, challenge today. What's job number one? Um, it will be to get an update from the uh, the bus team, as I call them, and there there are experts, just to kind of clarify a few points uh, and just connectivity around certain routes. I mean, I have I've got individual experiences of some of the routes that we've used today. I've positive feedback, but also just to. Uh, um, pinpoint and where exactly we are and to deliver the next stage of pushing on for that business case around enhanced partnership or franchising. Now when we did the the, uh, the, the networking event on the railway, the, the round table event on the railway, we had Jonathan Denby of Greater Anglia and he was telling us how that the, the service between Norwich and Cambridge, uh, the frequency it is, an hourly service, was really a, sort of a campaign, a push to get that and I, I started asking the question, what would a half-hourly service unlock? And I, personally, I'm very much of the view that a half-hourly service from Norwich, even after that's through to Stansted Airport, could unlock a very great deal of um, sustainable growth, not for Cambridge, um, for parts of Suffolk and for Norfolk and all the way up to Norwich. Um, is that a sort of thing, I'm not afraid to put you on the spot about this, but is that the sort of thing that you could you could possibly uh, take back with you um, to consider as you're, as you're looking at these issues? So, so yes, absolutely, but I'm going to reassure you and all your listeners uh, that one of the things that the Combined Authority is doing is we're taking leadership about the issue of uh, just of north of Ely, the Ely Area Capacity Enhancement Works. Um, that is a whole challenge, and in fact, um, on the announcement of the East West Rail uh, success story is that he said well let's not stop at East West Rail and connecting between Oxford and Cambridge and in areas in between let's push on let's push on to the uh, Norfolk Suffolk area connections with Ipswich and uh, uh, Norwich but we need this problem we need to address the problem that the pinch point that is Ely area um, junction needs to have massive improvement to improve the capacity particularly for a, a mayor for Cambridge from Peterborough because one of the biggest challenges I've got is the inequality in our area you know a sort of yes, north-south divide we, today I've come from Wisbeach and although we deliberately have taken a more circuitous route what we really want to see is those uh, Fenland towns and Fenland villages feeling more connected indeed Peterborough, more connected by having regular, uh, reliable uh, modes of public transport, using the rail infrastructure as we have, and ideally enhancing with regard to a, a rail net link between both March and Wisbeach, and, you know, a modern, um, possibly like, like very light rail uh, type uh, connection, which means that people in Wisbeach no longer feel as isolated, and then they have opened up the opportunity from the north of the area. Um, and indeed, what I would say, my hope will be in the long term, is that as we see more um, investment coming into, and we will see more investment in Cambridge and Peter, people want to come here. But my real drive is to say, look, when you when you hear Cambridgeshire, don't stop at Cambridge. Mm. Think, think wider, think bigger, think of the connectivity that could be possible, and an opportunity in terms of development of your business further afield into the East Cambridge district into the Fenland district because that's where we're really going to be successful as a whole is in this county
I think a lot of people, in, and certainly not just in Cambridgeshire, but in the whole of the region, will be really excited to, and really, really pleased to hear you say that. And I think you keep using sort of the magic words for Eastern Promise as potential and opportunity, and and it's and it's huge. And I think if if we look at sort of yeah, what what we can unlock through it through improvements at Ely, and that becomes a really exciting story that I think yeah. we can we can sort of get get people, dare I say, in, in, in government behind, uh, when we start talking about what, what, what the exciting things that will and, follow. And, and, and the good news is, is obviously, um, I don't know if this is necessarily secret because we have already announced it, but um, with the good news that uh, we're moving on with the Cambridge South delivery yes. at that train station, we had Hugh Merriman, you know, the Secretary yes, of State for the Railway, and uh, I was very pleased to hear his position was, I know what you're going to ask me, you're going to ask me about what am I doing about Ely area enhancement. And that's something, obviously, I will push with central government and will push with all political parties. I'll be certainly working with my shadow rail minister in the Labour Party because yeah. I think it's important that everybody's on message that... And it won't just be about the benefits that deliver in terms of Cambridge from Peterborough. It will, you know, an investment in Ely area enhancement will allow the improved movement of freight. We're talking about a Freeport yeah. down in Felixstowe and Harwich. All these areas getting... getting heavy freight off the roads onto the rails but then just imagine transference and how quick we can move stuff around the rest of the country the midlands the north it is an absolute priority for the country as a whole to improve early um, ely north junction well absolutely and these i think uh, for my money these are exciting times to be in the east of england we've got the energy we've got the energy picture we've got the science picture uh it's a very sort of shorthand way of doing it but the, the fantastic and, and your green energy renewable energy clean energy resources at the coast we've got Cambridge, uh, the cap UK's capital city of science. We've got Norwich coming up fast in the rearview mirror with the 317 million investment going in there into its science park. What a fantastic time to be in the east of England. What a fantastic time to go out and, and, and see see your constituency, meet your constituents and, and, and get to know uh, the public transport picture. Absolutely four square behind you. Uh, support what you're doing and we wish you every success with it. Good luck. Well, hopefully I'll get to the end of it before too long today. Yes. But thank you. I think we need a little bit more luck and a bit, make sure that those connections still happen. But very much appreciated. Thank you for your time. I'm hugely thankful to the Mayor of the Cambridgeshire and Peterborough Combined Authority, Dr Nick Johnson, for taking time out of his Six District Challenge on a blisteringly hot afternoon to talk to Eastern Promise. The Six District Challenge is a fantastic way to raise awareness of the importance of public transport and also to campaign for positive change. I also want to place on record my thanks to senior advisor Constance Anker, who acted as a homing beacon, allowing me to intercept both her and the mayor as they waited for their train to depart. And now, from one campaigning politician to another.
When you look at the renewable energy opportunities, all of a sudden, the Norfolk and Suffolk coastline, we're right in the vanguard, right at the front line. And, you know, whether we've got nuclear size well, the offshore wind off, in, off, off our, off our East, East, East Anglian coast, the opportunities for hydrogen coming out of our the legacy in the UK continental shelf. We have a hell of a lot to offer the UK and actually we can keep the lights on single-handed. MP for Waveney, Peter Aldous, speaking to me earlier this year at a meeting of the all-party parliamentary group for the East of England. And, of course, he's absolutely right. But what exactly is the scale of the opportunity that clean and renewable forms of energy represent to our region, the UK and the world? One thing's for sure, the opportunity stretches beyond just the generation of power, but into the supply chain as well. A greater demand for renewable energy can therefore support greater investment in skills, more and better jobs, regeneration and new opportunities that we haven't foreseen yet. I wanted to explore this further, and there was no better place to start than with the Managing Director of Opogee Group, Chair of the New Anglia Local Enterprise Partnership Innovation Board and very much a kindred spirit for Eastern Promise, Jonathan Reynolds. Jonathan Reynolds, welcome to Eastern Promise. We've been going some time saving, saving the region, saving the world already. But give us a potted history of yourself and then we'll come on to tell us about Opogee because oh. it's a huge, huge enterprise you're, you're, you're helming here. No, thanks, Mike. Where to start? So, Jonathan Reynolds, I am, my day job is the managing director of the Opogee group of companies. So we're a kind of a, a niche group of companies in the world of consultancy, very much um, in the world of energy, clean energy, sustainability, helping to address some of the, you know, the challenges and opportunities around climate change and delivery of net zero. We work with businesses, governments, supply chains, projects right across the board, whether it's in offshore wind, in onshore renewables, in hydrogen, in nuclear. Transport is becoming an interesting priority, marine, ports, etc. We work right across the spectrum. We, wow. we have this quite weird but broad capability um, and we started here in Norfolk um, very much regional, regionally based but we are now very international so I have a team in Scotland through Opogee Scotland I have a team in Asia uh, we're working right across the UK um, and beyond we have investments in kind of high growth really innovative technologies uh, so we have a, a, a company called Continuum so which is a world-leading technology company based in Denmark but we're looking to commercialize in the UK as well that's looking at yeah, composite recycling, so things like wind turbine blades, which is a major problem right now. We've got a proven technology to, to help you know, recycle and upcycle wind turbine blades into usable products. So there's exciting kind of technologies which we, are, we like to put our money where our mouths are and our resource where our mouths are in terms of helping bring these technologies to market. But I'm otherwise Norfolk born and bred. I've uh, been, been working largely in the world of energy and sustainability most of my career for the last 20 plus years. Um, spent a long time uh, you know, as the development director for the Orbis Energy uh, facility in Lowestoft, mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, which is fantastic. It is. 100% um, full still, which is great, um, owned by Suffolk County Council. But with, with Norfolk, Norfolk's my home. Norfolk's where we've put, you know, put the, the headquarters for Opogee. Um, my, my senior team and other sort of, yeah, business partners in Opogee are mostly, you know, from Norfolk and live in Norfolk um, and are passionate about our own, our own backyard. Um, and we like to see 
really where we can see that, that leverage investment in, in, our own, in our own area, in our own local communities. Um, that's, that's what we're passionate about. So I've got two of my directors who are sit on the board of the East of England Energy Group, again, giving back in terms mm-hmm. of the energy sector. So that's Martin Dronfield and Andy Holyland. Um, Martin you know, recently stood down as executive chairman, but again has been passionate about you know, you know, seeing growth and investment in this region. I've been on the, the Local Enterprise Partnership Board with New Anglia for the last, I think, these six years, nice. um, which has been great. And again, that's about me giving back and you know, passionate about seeing growth in the region. You know, it's, it's, they're all pro bono roles. We don't seek any remuneration from those, those, but it's about us giving back because we're passionate about doing the right thing. And that's, you'll, you know, that'll be a, be a trend of probably you'll, 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 you'll see through some of this conversation. We, I'm always passionate about doing the right thing. I don't care if it means that you know, someone benefits more than we do or, mm. or someone. It's, it's not about party politics in that sense. It's that sometimes you've just got to do the right thing, whether it's for business or society or local communities. I want to come on, if I may, to uh, last week, because we're speaking now at the very first day of June in 2023. And last week was the Southern North Sea Conference 2023 at the lovely, wonderful Norfolk Showground. And for those uh, asking for a friend, for those who were not there, what did they miss? The SNS 2023 was one of the best and the biggest events to date. It's been going for nearly nearly 20 years as, as a sort of a big Southern North Sea regional showcase for, for energy. And I think this year was the largest to date. More exhibitors, more, yeah, more footfall, an unbelievably packed conference program. But leveraging some of the uh, really senior industry officials, so Dan McGrail, the Chief Executive of Renewable UK, Tim Pick, the offshore wind champion. We had senior representatives such as Sarah Williamson from Sizewell Sea, who's, who's leading uh, the civil program uh, sort of for the construction of Sizewell Sea once it gets uh, final approval, hopefully not too far away, um, and a whole range of other, other yeah, industry leaders. We were there exhibiting. I think pretty much most members of my entire organization were there in some <laughs> form, both supporting it, speaking, hosting panel sessions, but exhibiting and, uh, and giving back as well, which, which is, is part of what we do. And I think the conference program was fascinating because it did cover everything from looking at the future of hydrogen, the future of the gas industry in the Southern North Sea, where we take offshore wind, some of the opportunities. But it was quite honest in terms of some of the challenges that we need to address as well. So the whole conference and the whole event went under the, under the sort of the banner of Vision 2030. Yes. And yeah, that, that was really important because you know, everyone's setting targets, whether it's you know, government po- policy targets around 2030. So in offshore wind, we want to see 50 gigawatts uh, of, new, of offshore wind installed by 2030. It's not far away. And we've got a long way to go. Um, we're, we, yeah, most local authorities or other, other, other public bodies are looking at you know, carbon neutrality or carbon emergency plans and carbon targets up to 2030. We are woefully behind where we need to be locally, regionally, nationally on some of those targets, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more to do. So setting that vision for what this region could do and should do was really important. I think there was yes. a collective, kind of a collective ambition coming out of the event that this region in particular, more so than any other region in the UK, has so much potential, not just to be a leading energy producer, but to really be a leading region in driving delivery of net zero. So some of the stats um, that I know we put together that Martin uh, spoke about in his kind of last, last hurrah as, as the executive chair. 
we talked about this region. If we just look at the renewables and low carbon generation assets, so solar, wind, onshore and offshore, what we have with size will be some of the bioenergy assets, which have got a whole abundance of different bioenergy, bioenergy, energy from waste, anaerobic digestion facilities. This region is powering the equivalent of 30 to 32 percent of all UK homes right now. Yeah. Which is pretty incredible, considering we only have about 10% of the UK population, but we're powering the equivalent of, yeah. of you know, 30-ish percent of all UK homes. You're welcome, Britain. With the pipeline of forecast investment in offshore mm. wind, the potential of Sizewell Sea, um, you know, and the amount of that can produce, with some forecast investment in bioenergy, not much in onshore wind, unfortunately, but that's something that I know government is starting to look at, finally. Um, we could see this region potentially produce enough power equivalent to 90% of yeah. all UK homes. Equivalent of 90%. Yeah. So, and that's including a huge amount of solar, about another three gigawatts of solar. Um, yeah, this is not you know, all just in, you know, rooftop solar on people's homes. This is some of those larger um, you know, uh, potential solar arrays, rooftop solar on big industrial uh, facilities. That's massive. So the role this region can play, I think, is absolutely quite incredible and is not always understood by local communities or you know, local politicians in terms of you know, what we need to do to make that happen. A lot of the time, grid, a national grid in particular, gets a kicking for all the wrong reasons. Um, I think politicians forget it's one of the most heavily regulated you know, <laughs> sectors. They've, yeah, they've, they've not been allowed to invest in sort of speculative um, yeah, infrastructure or speculative investment for decades. And in some ways, that's held us back because we've not been able to build the infrastructure ready for what we know might be in the pipeline until those projects, say an offshore wind farm or a big solar farm, absolutely start to scratch, you know, starts construction, then they build the grid connections. Well, if it's not building investing in grid at all levels, we can make a massive difference. So things then like the Norwich to, to you know, Essex uh, kind of route for 180 kilometres of potentially new infrastructure, possibly by pipeline, some undergrounding, comes in for a huge amount of public fury for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Personal view. Um, but I think if we, we need to recognise that it's not about this region powering London. It's about this region powering the UK, creating a huge economic you know, sort of, you know, potential. Yeah. All the jobs that will come with that, and tens of thousands of new energy-related jobs, mm-hmm. that's the prize. And they're long-term jobs. If we look at you know, whether it's in offshore wind, hundreds of jobs when those projects become operational. If we look at you know, size we'll see, up to 900 jobs you know, when that project is, is, is operational. Yeah, they're permanent jobs. And we're seeing up to eight or 9,000 jobs at peak during the 10-year construction period. That's over 25,000 jobs over, over the life uh, of that construction over the next 10 years. I mean, that's, that's a massive potential prize. One of the, I think, fantastic panel sessions, um, actually one of the speakers was, uh, was a lady called Beth, uh, one of the apprentices from Norfolk, yeah. who's currently doing her apprenticeship down at Hinkley Point C in Somerset. Yeah. She came back and was talking about her experience. Yeah. The fact that she is now working full-time down in, in Somerset on a major project. She's not only has a board, her lodgings, everything kind of covered She's you know, getting a degree level uh, kind of education. Wow. She'll be coming back, hopefully not too, you know, not too long away, to in a more senior position, mm. fully qualified, ready to work on yeah, and support the construction of Sizewell C. And 
even herself as a, as a young female, was inspirational, genuinely yeah. inspirational. And she herself said, actually, I want to inspire other young, young women to follow my, my footpath or follow my path into this sector because um, she can see the value. Yeah. She didn't know a few years ago what energy infrastructure was, what nuclear was. But she had a passion for you know, getting her hands dirty, you know, working, working with tools, <laughs> yes. working with things, which is fantastic. And that's something we need to encourage. But it's a challenge when you're coming on to education that that was a kind of a common theme through the whole of the SNS conference is where are the people? Where are the people that are going to deliver this huge opportunity? We have, if we talk to every industrial sector, whether it's in finance, in tourism, in housing, in construction, everyone's screaming for a skills crisis, that your, your skills shortage. And they're all true to a, to a degree. Everyone's got a you know, skills problem. But we're not joining the dots in terms of, well, we could talk about construction or housing or in transport. Actually, we need to kind of break that down to what are the skills in mechanical yeah, exactly or electrical? specific skills that can Because they're transferable. Yeah. So we're doing a huge amount of work. And again, it was launched uh, another platform we've been involved with called the Energy Skills Intelligence Hub, funded by APITO and the ECITB, so the Engineering Construction Industry Training Board, something that my, my team had obviously been leading on, to try and kind of bring some intelligence to you know, what the, the forecast looked like for the future of different you know, industry sectors, certainly around energy and hydrogen and carbon capture and offshore wind and oil and gas. But we're breaking it down into what are the skills? What are by grouped by you know, kind of job family or skill family? So we can look at different manufacturing roles we're gonna need, different consenting roles, different management roles, different leadership roles in HR and admin, breaking it down into those kind of details. So we can then encourage and look for skills mobility. How do we encourage people to transfer or have the confidence to transfer those skills from one sector to the other. Sometimes it'll be you know, coming in from, uh, from other sectors that are relevant, yeah. other infrastructure sectors, other construction sectors, or within energy sectors. How do we encourage that kind of skills mobility? And that's something that we're quite passionate about doing. It was a really common theme coming all the way through the yeah. conference, pretty much in every technology, whether it's in wind, hydrogen, nuclear, oil and gas, um, or carbon capture. Everyone was talking about how do we encourage that kind of skills mobility um, because that's where we need to put more focus if we're going to actually have any chance of solving some of the skills challenges, in quotes, um, that we all talk about, but create that long-term opportunity for generations to come. So what can we do? That's a really absolutely fascinating point. What can we do in this region for ourselves before we start saying, Mr MP, Miss, Mrs MP, can you talk to the government about this, that and the other? What, what levers have we got to pull to actually sort this for ourselves and how far do you think we can get down that road sometimes it just comes down to the basics of let's talk yeah. let's actually let's look at collaboration and open communication between areas between counties between technology sectors between industries and we don't do that often enough for, in, in, in my view so what really understanding what are the needs of wind versus nuclear or you know, infrastructure or road building or automotive because actually, we're all going to be fishing in the same talent pool. Mm. So how do we all collectively make that talent pool much bigger for ourselves? How do we collectively talk to the, the, the further education you know, college community, the sixth form college, the universities, holistically? And it's not about saying, Norfolk, you specialise in these courses, or you know, Suffolk, you specialise in these courses. Because be. you know, we still have areas of really, you know, real deprivation. There are kids in Great Yarmouth that have not been to Norwich, you know, teenagers that have never been to travel as far right. as Norwich. So I hear, you know, in terms yeah. of real deprivation. We've got, still, if we look at, you know, just down in Essex in terms of Jaywick, 
you know, in, in Tendring mm. District, yes. one of the most deprived exactly. communities um, you know, in, in the country. But actually, literally just up the road, we have massive potential through things like Freeport East, you know, Barside yeah. Bay and Harwich, for what could be some game-changing kind of investments in offshore wind manufacturing or hydrogen production, building a new 122-hectare port. I mean, these are massive, massive opportunities. Yeah. But just down the road, there's massive pockets or you know, real pockets of deprivation. The same thing in you know, parts of or pretty much every coastal community, so parts of Lower Stoffstill, parts of Great Yarmouth. So we need to balance that kind of opportunity with actually where do we focus on those vulnerable communities, those vulnerable families and, and areas of, of, of society as well. Because they're the people we really want to target. They're the people we really, really want to inspire to really kind of come and join these sectors. And that's where we're going to start seeing real social transformation yeah. and long-term growth for, for the region. I mean, I don't know Yarmouth as well as I know Lowestoft, but it seems to me that we've got the LEAF LEF facility and the work that the port of Lowestoft are doing. And that is such an exciting... I mean, just for, as, an out, as someone from the outside looking in, an exciting time because the mind reels at the possibility because you can see the cascade of employment opportunities, of people coming to be sighted close to the port. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the scope for somewhere like Lowestoft to benefit from if, if we do this right or if, if you know... Uh, all the stakeholders do this right. And there is that free-flowing communication, exchange of ideas. Mm. Um, what, what is the scope for that? To, to be blunt, the scope is, is boundless. Um, you know, the potential is That's boundless. That's what I was hoping you were going to say. But, you know, it's, it's not... You know, Lowestoft has huge, huge potential. But, you know, rather than just... I don't want to focus exclusively on Lowestoft. No, 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 no. I'm just saying because I know it's better than the that, that kind of ripple effect across yeah, exactly. the whole of the coast. But what's important... When we're talking about energy-related sectors, ports are critical... You can't deliver offshore wind without a port. You can't deliver oil and gas support without a port. So, yeah, they are absolutely critical. And, yeah, we're... Yes, Lowestoft, I think, and you're absolutely right, Project LEAF, so the Lowestoft Engineering um, Facility. Sorry, I'm going to say that again. It's the Lowestoft Energy Engineering Facility, yep. ABP. Please don't get... You know, don't, don't cancel my purchase order. Um, but we, and we were fortunate to, enough to, to be part of, um, you know, some of the early modelling for looking at the economic impact of that particular project. So 25 million investment from ABP, some support from, from the Towns Fund at Lowestoft as well, which is good. But you're right, that could be a real catalyst for further investments in the wider area of Power Park. Yeah, we've seen Orbis that was built mm. 13, 14 years ago. That's been a major catalyst for real innovation and some of the spin-outs um, from, from all this, like Scottish Power, who have now built their £10 million operation facility for East Anglia 1 within the port yeah, area. Seen, yeah. We hope you're going to see that expand when they build, you know, finalise the building of East Anglia 3 and the future of East Anglia 1 North and East Anglia 2. Even Vattenfall, you know, Vattenfall have chosen to base their long-term operation and maintenance base at the new Great Yarmouth O&M campus, which is fantastic. Again, Great. Yeah. major investment to unlock that part of, uh, part of Great Yarmouth, partly enabled through, through, through the LEP, through the Building Better Funds, and, and you know, investment from Norfolk and Great Yarmouth Borough Councils. Fantastic facilities. But the ripple effect, I was talking about this at SNS, actually, with Vattenfall, um, looking at the ripple effect through Lowestoft, through the whole of Norfolk and Suffolk, it's not just about those no. companies working in the port area. It's much bigger than that. Um, so we, we were talking about temporary accommodation for, for, for you know, yeah, technicians and, and construction you know, your workforce that are going to be coming to, to Lowestoft, Great Yarmouth, through their supply chain. And that's where I think we can, you know, that we can have real impact. But again, it comes back down to how do we connect the dots? 
So we're seeing in Lowestoft fantastic investment in, you know, in offshore wind. The port is critical to that. We've got to unlock somehow working with the local authorities as well, unlock planning so we can actually start to get a, a level of speed in you know, building new facilities. There is that Field of Dreams quote, build it and they will I come. Actually, you know, I thought of that one earlier, yeah, when you were talking. We, we, talk, we, we use that phrase a lot, um, yeah, but it is so true it for, is. for what we're doing in this region. Yeah, and go back to Orbis, and I was part of the, the development team at Orbis when I was part of the old East of England development agency that helped to, to finance the sort of 9.4 million capital that, that paid for Orbis, working with the county council. But it was very much build it and they will come. The local community thought this, what was this, this big white elephant um, this great big office building down, down at you know, what was the Household Waste Recycling Centre. But it worked. It was a strategic investment, long-term investment. It is 100% full. The challenge now is we can't build grow-on space quick enough mm. to satisfy that demand. So there's more demand for office space, more demand for workshops across the whole area, not just for Lowestoft, in Great Yarmouth as well, in Norwich, in Ipswich. You know, the impact when Sizewall C starts construction... The impact we'll hopefully see in Ipswich will be as great as it will be in areas of the Suffolk coast around Leyston and Saxmundham, businesses that will really, really benefit. Yeah. But it, you know, it's that ripple effect that we need to understand as well. It's not just where the projects are located. The whole region, if we get this right, the whole region will benefit. You know, look, at the, look at the impact of BT and Industrial Park. Yeah. You know, the whole region benefits from having Absolutely. that. that you know, it's one of the you know, kind of hidden gems of, of Suffolk. You know, BT's global research and development base just outside of Ipswich. Yeah. And we don't shout anywhere near, near enough about it. And all of the other businesses, it's not just BT on that, you know, on that park. So many high Indeed. growth, really, yeah, really fantastic digital companies and tech companies on that park. And we don't, we don't connect the dots enough. Um, so that how do we get the research parks working with, you know, uh, you know, with industry, working with the ports to really unlock that kind of joined up, you know, coordinated discussion? So it does come down for me that, could I answer your earlier question, open communication. And sometimes we just don't have the time to do that because everybody's so busy. We're all racing to catch up with each other. And sometimes we just need to slow down a little bit, stop, have those discussions. How can we generally and openly work together across sectors, across boundaries, across technologies? That way we can actually start having some really grown up, sensible conversations because we all want the same thing. Certainly those in business, we all want to see the same thing in terms of you know, investment and sustainable growth in our you know, respective yeah. areas. And I think the, the political manoeuvring or, or fears of the political comeback of these conversations, I think, is so damaging that in many ways, I think uh, business... And, you know, I I think business, particularly in in this region, is so open minded and really good at getting getting on with it and is proving that Mm. it's walking, it's walking and talking that you just have you will eventually, I think, bring people with you, those politicians with you. Yeah. The more successful you are, the more they want to know. I do think sometimes we have almost political a, a level of fear within some of the local politics, fear of doing the right thing or the wrong thing because of the impact it might have on voters or an upcoming election. Um, yes, I can see that from a politician's perspective, but my, my message to any politician is be brave. Mm. Let's take longer. Yeah, decisions that are the right thing. Comes back to what I was saying earlier. It's about doing the right thing. Sometimes it's yeah, and these, those decisions and those objectives, those targets need to go way beyond political cycles. Yeah, this constant let it set a target within a political cycle is 
is nonsense when it mm -hmm. comes to business. Business don't make short-term investment decisions or growth decisions on, on political cycles. It's, yeah, it's different. It's because there is the, the right infrastructure or the right kind of opportunity for them or the right kind of you know, co-location of their potential customers or suppliers or access to talent. That's the, you know, some of the drivers for businesses to choose where they invest. We, you know, we need to you know, be, have much braver you know, discussions with, with local politics to make sure we, we kind of think more long-term about where do we see this region, these counties, in 2030, 2040, 2050. And then work backwards from, what is it we want to see? Work backwards from, say, a vision 2050. Um, but all right, let's you know, start vision, vision 2030, because it's a slightly, slightly yeah. shorter term. And let's stop talking about kind of the political cycles if Labour gets in at general election, if the Tories manage to you know, uh, you know, keep a majority. Absolutely. We've, we've seen the impact of the Greens, um, which have now secured Mid Suffolk and, and, and uh, yeah, East Suffolk and Mid Suffolk. You know, that's changing the, you know, the nature of, of some of the local politics. Um, if we're not careful, that will become a distraction from you know, where we need to focus in terms of business and industry, driving growth, investing in jobs, investing in new infrastructure. And we need the public sector and local government bodies to work alongside business. Mm -hmm. Not sometimes it does feel that there is, is kind of a bit of a divide, there's a them and us um, you know, kind of you know, debate. And not everywhere, I appreciate. It. And there are some, some local authorities that are much more grown up um, and, you know, than, than others. Personal view. <laughs> but, you know, that's, but I think we need that open dialogue if we're going to actually be serious about long-term investments and long-term growth for, for our region, whatever our region, big R, small R, uh, will look like in the future. You have, I agree with everything you said there, but unsurprisingly, since that's not the whole raison d'etre of this podcast. Um, Martin Dronfield, whom you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. uh, got some, some coverage and uh, gently raised eyebrows for his comments at SN. You mentioned his sort of uh, farewell address. Um, about the you know the east of England is 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 what it is here and now and that uh, sorry Aberdeen you've uh, well that that was how it was yeah. reported I wasn't yeah. there so I can't comment um, and uh, just just quickly um, I I sort of read the coverage of what he said and I thought that sounds absolutely uncontroversial to me he's absolutely spot on uh, it, do you want to sort of cover off briefly what what because uh, I'm assuming you're in the room but what he said. And uh, why he's right. I know we've kind of covered this already, but... Um... Well, hopefully Martin will be listening to the podcast, so of course he's right. Um, you know, of just, course he is. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, the, the, the message was, this region quite often is, yeah, undersells itself. Yes. And going back to what I was saying... That's earlier, why I'm here. This, this region in particular, you know, I think, has a leading role in terms of energy production and generation. We don't shout about it enough. Um, in terms of offshore wind, we have over five gigawatts, uh, yeah, about 37, nearly 40% of all installed capacity of offshore wind in this region, off, mm -hmm. off the coast of this region. That's more than any other region can boast. If we look at you know, the, the level of onshore wind, okay, it's about 420 megawatts. So not great, not when you compare it to the likes of Scotland. If, we look at, if you want to decarbonise the regions, look at what Scotland's achieved with onshore wind. Mm -hmm. It has one of the lowest carbon intensities of its grid of any part of the UK because it's really gone heavy on, on onshore wind. We need to learn from that in other parts of England. Just sweep that to the politics to the one side for the moment because I know obviously this government does have uh, consultation on that uh, on onshore wind at the moment. So hopefully we'll, we'll see some common sense prevail. 
Leveraging our aquaculture, we have so many different types of bioenergy, energy from waste, anaerobic mm. digestion. Yeah, we're burning all sorts of, of interesting, whether it's poultry litter, straw, all sorts of other, other kind of waste, um, agricultural waste to produce power. Fantastic. We need to see more of that, but we need to balance that with future feedstocks. Battery storage, I think, is going to be one of the most interesting ones. We have more than 2.8 gigawatts of battery storage projects in the pipeline which I think is phenomenal um, in terms of looking at grid resilience and yeah, evening out some of the variability of renewables. Because, as it's often said, the wind doesn't blow at peak direction 24 yeah, hours a day, the sun a, doesn't that's shine. That's a bit of a lazy argument, I find. You know, people will cling to any, any, you know, cling to any... So the response there is, how do you then you know, leverage yeah. that? So putting in place battery storage, so color the cake. So actually, we are seeing most projects, or quite a significant number of projects that are looking at planning in this region looking to co-locate a large solar farm or, or some other renewable energy asset with batteries. So it actually has a much, much greater impact. Fantastic to see. We've currently got about 137 solar projects that generate about 1.3 gigawatts of power. In planning, there's another mm -hmm. 175 currently in the planning system. So exciting. So over another three gigawatts of potential solar. So that, that, those 137 have been built over a fair, fair amount of time, the last yeah, decade yeah, yeah. plus. 175. Now, not all of those might get planning permission, let's be honest, um, but I hope a significant number will. And that, again, with the impact of you know, that 2.8 gigawatt of battery storage, will really transform the way that renewables and the variability of renewables can play a real key part in future you know, sustainable um, you know, energy production. Touch on nuclear, you know, 1.2 gigawatts um, you know, at size will be, another 3.2 with the advent of size will see. Fantastic. We need to see more of that. Now, I'm not saying necessarily large EPR rollouts. I'd love to see you know, uh, sort of the, the you know, size well replica at somewhere like Bradwell. Um, or, you know, but we need to embrace what's the future of smaller or advanced modern reactors also look like. If we're going to build this huge workforce for size well, which is, has a, such a fantastic opportunity, how do we leverage that? Yeah. What can we, we give them to do that? next? Yeah. You know, nuclear behaviors in, you know, in the world of the energy sector are some of the best safety standards, the best health and safety kind of, you know, and sort of you know, behaviours anywhere in, in any part of the energy sector. How do we use that as a catalyst for investment in skills yeah. in other technology areas? So I think there's a huge opportunity to do that. Um, a good example I've been, been, been working with uh, through some of the work we're doing with Sizewall C is working with the colleges around their electric vehicle base. So the shift in automotive from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. Why is that important for nuclear? Well, actually, working with electric vehicles is high-voltage skills. It's high-voltage yeah. electric, yeah. electrical skills. That's the kind of skills we need in offshore wind, in nuclear, in battery storage. It's not wiring up your three-pin plug. No. So actually, how do we kind of connect the dots? We need more investment in electric vehicles. Absolutely. That's going to be part of the future of passenger transport. But we also need to, you know, massive investment in that skill area because the rest of the power generation sector is also going to want to use those skills in terms of high voltage. So there's, there's some really interesting, let's get back to connectivity. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll get on to hydrogen in a second. But, you know, yeah, I was going to say hydrogen is my next, my next port call. One of the other big announcements around you know, in the last week or so, and again it was touched on at SNS uh, last week, is carbon capture and storage. So how do we kind of look at the future of the gas industry off the southern North Sea, off the Norfolk coast in particular, for this potential of CO2 storage? And this, that's a really interesting one. So how do we capture carbon dioxide from heavy industry um, yeah, around, around the UK, certainly in parts of yeah, Yorkshire and Grimsby, um, and yeah, start to store those in underground reservoirs or former depleted gas reservoirs? 
off the Southern North Sea, off the Norfolk coast. And of the 20 new licenses that have been granted, a number of those are you know, just off our coast. And again, that's going to be a really new and interesting area um, in terms of carbon storage. But I think for me, that kind of presents an interesting kind of you know, a dichotomy as well, because at the same time, we want to look at capturing CO2 and storing underground. We've got other sectors that are you know, almost screaming out, we need more CO2. So if we look at the food and drink sector, Diageo for the last three years, I think uh, at least two years running, around summertime have declared a, nas- yeah, a global shortage of carbon dioxide for carbonated drinks, which I could never get quite get my head around <laughs> yeah, some of the, the PR headlines that you know, shortage of CO2 when you know, climate change is, is, is kind of in, you know, turn the page and we're talking about oh. you know, you know, disastrous impacts of climate. So, <laughs> but also if we look at some of the future of alternative fuels, and I know this is linked to, to hydrogen, what to come on to, there's a huge focus around sustainable aviation fuels or sustainable marine fuels. And quite often that's you know, kind of uh, what you call e-methanol or e-kerosene or related kind of you know, similar products or similar fuels. They're typically created through combining hydrogen with carbon dioxide through various you know, and, and, and other things as well um, in terms of refinement. So actually we need a huge amount of CO2 with hydrogen to create these alternative fuels. So we've got to be into, you know, it's a balancing act. Yes, we need to capture, yes, we need to store CO2 and lock it, for, you know, lock it away for thousands of years. But we also need to make sure that we're not just here focusing on CO2 capture and storage, because otherwise we're going to be almost, you know, in a few years' time, having to unlock those taps again to try and use that CO2 <laughs> to create alternative fuels. So there's, there's a really interesting balancing act. Yeah, there. yeah. And then sort of that kind of brings us on to hydrogen. So like the pain tile. I mean, the first time I talked about hydrogen, I thought there was hydrogen. And then I said, there's two colours. No, there's actually... Oh, like, no, so, it's like uh, Christoph Kislowski trilogy. It's like, it's like a pain tile in Dulux, you know. Which is like a shade of hydrogen, you know. There's a whole rainbow myriad of colours with hydrogen. I have um, frosted peppermint hydrogen today. <laughs> I've not come across peppermint hydrogen yet, but hey, it's, it's, there's still, there's still time yes. of the day. I think red was an interesting one. That was a fairly new one on me um, yeah, last week. Um, What's red? Go on then. Red is um, hydrogen produced through both nuclear power and high temperature. So it's kind of high heat. So this this, this, uh, model through kind of what's called solid oxide um, electrolyzers, where it's higher temperatures. So you can kind of electrolyze water at much higher temperatures or effectively electrolyzing steam. Um, But you do that through tapping off heat and power. And nuclear power stations are fantastic because they're not only great power stations, they're also great big heat machines. Mm-hmm. So, and that's something that even Science will see is looking at and how we can harness some of the heat from nuclear power to support that kind of process in terms of both yeah, high temperature electrolysis for hydrogen, but also potential for district heating networks longer term. So there's, there's some really interesting kind of yeah, innovative areas that people don't often think about attached to nuclear. But, yeah, so we've got red, we have pink uh, hydrogen, we have green, blue, turquoise, yellow, there's whatever colour you want. But I'm not sure about peppermint just yet, but yeah, maybe we'll, we'll come up with that one a bit later. <laughs> the puce hydrogen. Well, absolutely. But I think it's, it's one of the, the technologies, or one of the energy vectors that I think kind of starts to link all of the different generation types, whether it's solar, whether it's onshore renewables or you know, onshore wind or bioenergy or, or oil and gas in terms of what the, 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 the concept of blue hydrogen, so taking natural gas... Go through, put it through a process called steam methane reforming. So you capture the CO2, um, you lock that away through carbon capture and storage, and you're left with, with hydrogen. Uh, they call it blue hydrogen because of the way it's produced. Mm-hmm. Um, where 
The, the normal one everyone is talking about at the moment is green hydrogen, and that's simply electrolytic hydrogen. So it's hydrogen produced through electrolyzers, so electrolyzing or, you know, water or splitting water into its constituent elements of hydrogen and oxygen, powered through some kind of renewable or low-carbon you know, asset, whether it's wind, solar or, or nuclear power. Um, that then, yeah, unfortunately, people then like to put their own thing, you know, their own kind of colour on things. So yellow being solar, turquoise being bioenergy or, or other things, you know, pink, as I said, being nuclear, red being nuclear with you know, heat and power. So it is variable. But, you know, I think for me, hydrogen is one of the key technologies or key sources we need to spend a bit more time focusing on. It's not getting as much traction as we had hoped um, in terms of both government policy uh, and government support. There's some great stuff going on, don't get me yeah. wrong, but I think we need to fast track some of the thinking there. There's been this polarised argument for some time uh, with hydrogen around, do we put it through the pipes um, for hydrogen for heating for domestic homes? And you know, in some areas it might be viable, in other areas it might not be viable. And that's simply down to you know, the integrity of the grid network. We have, an, you know, like the uh, power networks, it's ageing infrastructure. Some of that pipelines, you know, those pipelines you know, across the country, the National Transmission Network, has been there for quite some time. Yes, it's being upgraded. Yes, it's being, being looked at. But I think it's not, hydrogen won't be suitable everywhere. So I think at the moment, the government are planning to make a decision, a firm decision on whether or not to allow hydrogen for heating for domestic consumption by around sort of 2025, 2026. I think that's a bit leaving it a little bit late because you know, we need to kind of either choose to invest or choose not to invest. But I think one of the big sectors we're focusing on at the moment, certainly through what we do within Opogy, but also the regional cluster that, again, was, was kind of launched um, more formally at SNS around Hydrogen East, is looking at hydrogen for transport. Mm. Because, but sometimes it's not hydrogen that people want. It's what we call a hydrogen derivative. So hydrogen is a core part, but it's a touched on around whether it's for aviation or maritime. Hydrogen chemically combined with carbon dioxide to create an alternative fuel, methanol or yeah, any kerosene or some other derivative, or chemically bond um, yeah, with nitrogen to create ammonia. Again, lots of this, you know, we're seeing now in other parts of the world, you know, in new ships being commissioned powered by ammonia, you know, green ammonia or powered by e-methanol electric lytic methanol. Um, and we're seeing the same for you know, the aviation sector in terms of you know, common discussion around SAF, sustainable aviation fuels, which is a simple, it's a hydrogen derivative in, you know, in many cases. So I think hydrogen has a role to play. And I think hydrogen could, if we focus on the transport sectors, I think that's probably one of the harder to you know, address you know, areas of, 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 you know, of net zero in terms of reducing emissions. And I think we just need to kind of prioritise. So I think for me right now, focus on hydrogen for transport and heavy industry, because we know we can do that. It's relatively safe yeah. um, compared to, to other alternatives. And one of the challenges is if you're pumping it um, into people's homes, you're as good as the, you know, the boiler at the end or however that's maintained. So you've got lots of points of failure. On, you know, and sometimes you've got domestic consumers that like to tinker. They're not trained engineers. <laughs> They're not trained gas engineers oh. in that sense. So there is a safety impact. Yes, we need to address that. But yeah, I think there is a massive role for hydrogen to play, but also around energy storage. There's you know, big concerns, and you would have seen these in the press, as like I have, around lithium-ion or, or access to kind of rare earth materials globally for things like batteries, for whether it's the future of battery electric vehicles, for EVs, or, or you know, battery storage projects. 
And that's, that's going to remain uh, an interesting challenge because we are not the only country in the world that's looking at pathway to net zero and how we can fast track that. Every grown up economy is doing the same thing. So we're all going to be looking at wind or hydrogen or nuclear around the world. So this is not just a, a regional opportunity or even a UK opportunity. This is a global opportunity because we're all going to be adopting similar or variations of similar mm. technologies. So I think hydrogen as what we call long duration energy storage absolutely has a key role because you can transport it, compress it and store it for long periods before you end up needing it. Mm. So looking at kind of interseasonal um, you know, storage. And you know, it's interesting that we, in terms of government uh, policy around things like low carbon heat, um, how do we look at solving the heat challenge? So in winter, we have this massive peak energy demand you know, through winter periods for, for heat, just for you know, whether it's gas or for, for electric for, for heating. In the next few years, with the, you know, with the challenges around you know, the climate change, we're going to see a complete reversal of that. We're going to see huge demand for electricity for cooling. Air conditioning or you know, comfort cooling in mm. homes and businesses. Mm. So actually, in winter, we're going to need much greater energy demand for heating, but that will completely reverse in the summer periods for cooling. And we're not necessarily always thinking about mm. how do we balance that. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see how we can start to address that. But that comes back to almost that interconnectedness, how are we thinking about the design of new properties or new buildings to look at heating, cooling, and the kind of infrastructure that can support that. So it's not one or the other. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is just a small fragment of my chat with Jonathan Reynolds. You can find the whole interview on the podcast feed. Just look for Jonathan Reynolds' extended version. It is impossible to come away from a conversation with Jonathan without feeling tremendously energised about the future of our region. I'm incredibly grateful to Jonathan for his time and for his boundless enthusiasm. And I do hope that's not the last we've heard from him on Eastern Promise. It's not uncommon for Cambridge to be viewed from the outside as impenetrable. You're often left wondering what goes on in labs and office spaces across the city behind closed doors. Well, those doors were flung ajar in this week's Cambridge Wide Open Day. Sunil Shah, O2H Group. It's a beautiful day at Hoxton House. Cambridge Wide Open Days in full swing. The gardens here are already buzzing. It's not even time for the garden party yet. How's it, how's it, how's it kicked off? It's now lunchtime. Well, we've got some great buzz around the place. Um, a lot of uh, uh, visitors from, from the US, uh, from London, from India as well, have, have come over just in my little talk on O2H Ventures and, and O2H Group and what we're doing here. Uh, so it's been a really good intera- interactive session. Um, I'm meeting people I haven't met before. So, and we're having, we have local residents here. We have venture capitalists. Um, and we have uh, innovators from around the world. So it's a, it's, it's a highly innovative day in, in, in our history of, at O2H, and I'm really enjoying it. 
I mean, this has really caught on all across the city, and there are so many, so many organisations, places in the city, places out in the science parks, all taking part. That must, that must be feel really, really good to have such such a level of buy-in for the first one of its kind. Yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's an amazing amount of uh, companies that have been involved in, in taking part in the whole machinery of the day, um, and we have, you know, O2H has its, you know, we've been in Cambridge for uh, all our lives essentially, and. and, and have grown up in the uh, biotech ecosystem or the ecosystem that, we, that is Cambridge today and we've worked in the science park we've got portfolio companies probably in all the science parks and it's, it's great to have you know have all of them involved and, uh, and supporting the day so so what's the one thing you want people from from uh, across industry across uh, local residents and uh, across just visitors like myself what's the one thing you want them to take away about Cambridge wide open day Cambridge is open for business I think that's essentially you know we were always seen as a, a, you know, people say we come to Cambridge, you find it hard to find the right person. It's very much, it's either the, it's either business or it's, it's the locals, and there's that, that interaction or that openness was never really there. And people who came to Cambridge said it's very hard to break into the old mould of the old sort of Cambridge hierarchy. And hopefully, with this day, that it's opened up somewhat, and you know, people feel they can go and pick up the phone, talk to someone. They're interested. People will connect to you, and so it's a very open ecosystem in Cambridge. And I think that's the message of the day. We're open. Well, Sir Nilshar, it's a fantastic day. I, I won't say best of luck because you've already had it. I mean, look at the weather. Enjoy the rest of the day and thank you so much for, for all your hard work in getting this going. So my name's Ashley Box. And where are you from, Ashley Box? Thermo Fisher Scientific. And what's brought you to Cambridge Wide Open Day? I think the, the extent of all the, the exciting stuff going on today, the different science parks that are opening up, showcasing their technology, showcasing to everybody really what's going on here in Cambridge, what makes it so exciting and vibrant as an ecosystem. Um, so, yeah, lot, lots of things. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people uh, say that, uh, certainly from, from, from outside Cambridge, find, say they find it quite hard to engage with the city. And, and, it, and I think, from my experience, it takes a lot of effort, but once you do it, it once you've made that effort, it is richly rewarding. What do you find? He's looking behind you, slightly frightened now. Yeah, I mean, I'm not from Cambridge, so I travel to Cambridge. I'm down from, uh, based down in Sussex, but I've always had good experiences. I think the, the network to get here is good. The rail system, the road system, once you're here, the ecosystem actually supporting science is, is brilliant. Um, very engaging. There's always different networking events going on. I, I think it's like anything. The more you put in, the better experience you'll get, the, the wider contact and network that, that you'll build. So... Um, Cambridge for us is a, is a super city uh, full of very exciting customers doing some you know, really innovative uh, things. Well, that's just what we want to hear. Any, any more volunteers? Oh, you're smiling. That looks... <laughs> Harry, uh, come on. Harry. Harry. Just wanted to do me the meeting the other yeah, day. I've, had, I've done my... Uh... Oh, well, you've all got Thermo Fisher lanyards on, so... Yeah, and uh, Well, everyone from Thermo Fisher, have a fantastic time at Cambridge Wide Open Day. Thank you for coming, in some cases, quite away. i just come down from Norfolk and I thought that was a schlep. But uh, um, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Victor Schroyer, Life Sciences Recruitment. What have you seen so far at Hawkston House today? Well, uh, we've seen a fantastic building that was uh, derelict before, but has been saved by um, by O2H, and we've been uh, we've been here representing our company and uh, and going through a couple of meetings, uh, meeting already existing clients, and hopefully picking up a new prospective clients as well. And and are you? Uh as well as sort of looking for clients, are you also uh, looking uh, for anyone, any talent hopping around that you can uh, link up with existing well, client base, or am I not allowed to know that? Well, no, of course. I mean, the nature of, of our recruitment industry is always both sides of the of the spectrum, isn't it? Picking up new clients. I'm here as a, as a business developer um, on one side of the business, but also equally interested to hear about 
what the scientists are looking for themselves and if there's potentially new opportunities that they're looking for, but also if they can potentially lead me on to certain companies that they're potentially interested in speaking to. So I think it's fairly obvious why something like Cambridge Wide Open Day would attract you and would attract uh, life science recruitment. This being the first, is it surprising to you that this is the first of its kind? Because it certainly surprises me that this hasn't been done for years. But I think it's fantastic it's been done now, but is it, is it surprising? What more would you like to see from it in the future? Well, it's, it's funny you say that. There are a few big conferences that are being held and, and the idea of us getting exposure to companies by joining you know, something that's been organised like O2H is, is always very interesting. But uh, ideally, what, what someone like us or, or an agency like us would love to have is some sort of real exposure to the companies that are actually here. And if we could get some, some lists and some delegates of these people that are here, that would, be an, that would be an ideal world and that we can exchange contact information and see potentially if there's just some sort of way in setting up an introduction um, on site uh, where we can already have some background information on each other and that we can really kickstart some, some really meaningful conversations. Well, if O2H is listening for this, I'm sure they'll, they'll take that on board and uh, now they've got the, the, the chance to offer it. Um, what are you looking forward to uh, for the rest of the day and are you staying for the garden party? Um, well, we, we're actually quite local. We're only, we're only two hours away or so. We're, we're close to London. Um, but it, it depends on, on, on how fruitful our conversations are going to be. Of course, we're very happy to stay. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure by the way things are going right now, we will probably stay until the garden party and, uh, and hopefully meet plenty more uh, interesting people. Victor, thank you very much for your time. I hope you enjoy the rest of the day. We are on the sixth floor of the wonderful Botanic House with a, quite frankly, staggering view of Cambridge on a beautiful, beautiful blue uh, Wednesday afternoon and I'm here with Donna Ardeman and you're obviously part of the Mills and Reeve team here and what's your what's your role with Mills and Reeve? So I'm a partner here and I lead up our investment funds practice. Wow okay why are Mills and Reeve supporting Cambridge Wide Open Day? It, it, this, it reflects everything that Mills and Reeve does to be honest from from the fact that we're we've been in Cambridge for over a hundred years that we've been here for a long time and we're heavily involved in the incredible infrastructure that creates the, the, the science and tech hub that, that Cambridge is. And I think people don't really appreciate sometimes how much infrastructure, and I, when I mean infrastructure, I mean social infrastructure, I mean legal infrastructure, I mean architectural infrastructure, um, financial infrastructure required to create this level of global you know, tech cluster and science cluster. Um, and it, it, it comes all the way from, from the beginning, from the idea stage, a world-class university, and all of the organizations around the, that, that university which are creating ideas which have people meeting in a pub and discussing something that's never happened before, how to solve a problem that's, a, you know, that, that, that's critical to the time. Um, all the way from the idea, but also the nurturing, the research, the labs, where the buildings that people can, can try out these ideas, that can explore these ideas. And then there's the money that comes behind it. There's how do you finance it? How do you bring these people along? There's the business alongside of it. Where's the, tech, where's the, where's the expertise to learn how do you start a business? How do you fund that business? How do you grow that business? And how do you bring that idea to a place where it you know, literally solves problems? problems in in the world yeah. um, Cambridge has all of those things we have all of those components and I think especially you know during the pandemic there we are sitting in our individual houses working from our jobs it's it's 
easy to forget what a sophisticated and fantastic social, economic, intellectual infrastructure we have here and with the, with the ability to solve some of the world's greatest problems. Now, what occurs to me, and that, that, that's absolutely fantastic, and I love the picture you paint there, and what occurs to me is that Mills and Reeve basically get involved. You, you have two people, three people, four people in a pub, in a common room, in a, somewhere in this great city. Uh, you know, in many ways, the UK's capital city of science. Uh, I have a great idea, but Mills and Reeve are there when, if you pardon the language, shit gets real where the rubber hits the road, as it were. You're there when a great idea becomes a, be, gets life, yes, you know, absolutely. takes flight. Yes, absolutely. That's why I have the best job in the whole world um, and, and why, why it's such an exciting place to work, really, because if you look at Mills and Reeve, I mean, we're, we're, we're a, a, a national top 40 firm, we're a full-service firm, but we run along sector lines, um, and those include a huge education practice, we've got a, a really substantive IP practice, we've got a huge life sciences practice, we've got an impressive tech practice, and we're helping create those centers which, um, which, which you know, the, the real estate which is developing those things, we're helping develop the funds which finance those things, we're helping start the companies which commercialize those things. Um, and, and again, you know, when, when, when trouble develops, we can help with that too. Well, let's hope, let's hope that that doesn't happen often because it seems to me I mean, with Cambridge and um, with my sort of entirely self-appointed uh, bailiwick, my you know being the the, hot, the east of England, you know, however it's a state of mind, however you want to define it, there's sort of endless scope not just in this city, but I know you have colleagues in in Norwich, and I'm bound to talk about that. Um, but the scope for growth, for for new sustainable buildings, uh, you know, when I say buildings, I mean lab spaces, tech spaces. You must love coming to work because there's, there's, there's no end of great, fantastic things you can do for this city and for the region. Well, absolutely. And, it's with, and that's on the positive side. But even on the, on the, um, on the potentially ne negative side, I, mean, I remember how I felt when, when, the, when the pandemic hit and, and the, the, um, you know, sort of that worry of, hey, how, how are we going to, as a, as a community, how are we going to pull through this? Um, and then coming to work and finding out what our clients are doing to solve those problems, those labs which opened up and started um, and started uh, testing or cre creating ventilators or um, or indeed working on uh, vaccines. Um, it, it's a it's a very optimistic world to be in, and I think Cambridge is that that yeah. optimistic bubble where you say, well, okay, the world's actually facing some pretty serious problems here. But um, but there are also the solutions here and the and yeah, absolutely yeah. I mean that's one of the things I love about uh, getting around places across the region, but especially places like Cambridge and, and Norwich and the coast. Because to my mind, and I just asked you to reflect on this just before I, I let you get back to work, um, there are lots of places in in, in this country and and beyond that that do lot, bits of the things that we need for the future. But the east of England with the energy coast, the renewable clean energy on our, the Norfolk Suffolk coast, science of all stripes here in, in Cambridge, you've got science, you know, fantastic plant science in Norwich, genomics, both places. Uh, we've got food, we've got agritech. This region basically has it all, has everything that we're going to need to face the future. And what a wonderful thing you've got. It's like a full-service agency like, like Mills and Reeve there to sort of support it wherever that growth, wherever that innovation, whenever that science... Uh, springs up. Well, 
I would say this, but it's a real privilege and pleasure to be able to, 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 to work alongside uh, other organizations like ours in Cambridge who can do that. Mm. I mean, I'm bound to say all these things because one of the things I, I enjoy doing this, I, I sort of set myself the goal of going out there and being all sunshine and lollipops, but the East of England truly is a, a fantastic place and, and what a delight it is to have Mills and Reeve uh, as a key part of that community. You're very much uh, famed for being tight-knit as a company, no matter how big you get. And, you know, it's great to see you sort of embrace being part of that, that wider community in Cambridge and, and across the region. Thank you very much for your time today. And it's been a real privilege talking to you. Thank you very much. And you. Thank you. Well, it's the end of a fantastic day. Cambridge Wide Open Day 2023. I'm here with Jamie Clyde, Bruntwood SciTech. Jamie, what have you thought of the day? It's been fantastic. It's the first of what I hope will be an annual event that opens the doors to everybody. So they come and see the amazing work that's going on right across the cluster in all the science parks, um, and, and whether it's tech or life science across the region. Why do you think it's so important for Cambridge to do this? Because some might say, uh, incorrectly, that why, why does Cambridge need to throw open its doors? Surely everybody knows about Cambridge. That's the sad reality is that so many people who live here live rub alongside these various parks have no idea what goes on and the value that they're creating, not just for them, but for society. But here's an opportunity for you to understand what's going on a lot more and also for them to understand what opportunities there are personally for their families, for their kids. And so the next generation can see the potential that's open to them on their doorstep. Well, that, that's fantastic, and, and you can't argue with that. What a, what a wonderful idea, what a wonderful concept. And again, let's hope we're back here having this discussion again next year. Jamie Clyde, what a pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, here's a surprise. Dr Nick Johnson, Mayor of the Cambridgeshire and Peterborough Combined Authority. Lovely to see you here for the, for the second yeah. time this week. I saw you, yes, I saw you on a Monday for the Sixth District Challenge, and now we are here for the... <laughs> wide open day of Cambridge yeah um, these are important events to be at and I'm glad you're you're supporting it as well of course I'm glad you're supporting it as well as you should I mean this is wonderful it's not just throwing open the doors to scientists and investors and as important as those are it's actually throwing the doors open to local people and saying this is what your city does you know because one thing I've noticed on Eastern Promise is we are people across Cambridge across Norwich and all across the region they do business globally but if you if you say who do you talk to within the east of England about what you're doing, the answer is quite often nobody. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm laughing to myself because I've got friends They're coming over in the background, which is sort of maybe symbolic of the idea of what this whole event's about. Um, I mean, Prashant has been the big driving force behind it, you know, O2H. He, he, he gets it, and, you know, if you come over here to sort of Hawkston, um, you realise it's a, a science tech hub but it's part of the community. It's at the end of a row, and uh, you know, and the fact that all the local neighbours are so uh, understanding of what's happening. There's a party at the end of the street, and you know, when the day finishes, when the party's over, the work will still get done. But what's happened here is that you've, the, the local community has been, uh, you know, invited in, and they can feel part of the ambition and the strategy of this particular science park. But they, it's replicated all the way over the local area through the Cambridge City and Greater Cambridgeshire. But uh, they've given me an opportunity today to talk about 
about the, the messaging. And it's funny when everybody was doing their speeches, the idea of the three C's, the compassion I talk about, the cooperation, and then, then how you deliver for the community. It comes out in bucket loads here. And I can begin to see, because it's not just about Cambridge City and the innovation that's you know unique to this area and the history of the place and the discovery of DNA. We've got to spread that message, not just over the whole of Cambridge and Peterborough, but ideally over the whole, the whole area that you cover, I think the I'll... east of England, yes, indeed. So, I mean, I, I think there's, there's real inspiration that comes of it and real ambition. And if you start with the compassion and really caring and you get the cooperation you deliver for your community, so I'm really happy. Yeah, I mean, we, I think we must have to have a letter and a number because I, I work to a 5P strategy and two of those are people and place. And, and, and you're right, this, for, for people who can't, you obviously can't see this, this is literally at the end of a residential street. It's like a house party. It's like, it is a house party and it, it is an incredibly fun, friendly, open, appropriately, house party. And it's wonderful to see you here. It's wonderful to see you supporting this. This has given me so many ideas for what, for what I can do uh, with Eastern Promise. But, and I'm sure Pressure Aunt won't mind if I, I, I steal some of them. The best ideas are the stolen ones. Yeah. And uh, so, so what are you going to take from this going forward? Well, I've got a real sense that the messaging around wanting to open up and work with the community is not just something that is beginning to happen locally in terms of local government and local government policy, but it's also about, and I think it is important here, the challenge is also going back to the scientists, to the developers, to the businesses saying, you know, we are a successful area and people do want to come here and invest. But if you come here and you want to grow, you've got to take the people with you. You've got to have that cooperation and you've got to be visible in showing that. And just opening up is important, but doing it with a smile and then really being welcoming, really being compassionate. Then then people will come with you and then you'll, you'll, you'll see the benefits for your business. What a perfect message to end on. Dr. Nick Johnson, Mayor of Cambridge and Beaterbrook Brand Authority, thank you so much for being on our show twice this week. Fantastic. Take care. Well, what a perfect bookend to a perfect day. Prashant Shah, congratulations on the first Cambridge Wide Open Day. What a triumph to go all over the city and see the banners uh, at science parks in the centre of town uh, proclaiming that the doors to Cambridge are wide open. How do you feel at the end of the day? Uh, Delighted. Um, when you have got a new machine and you've put it together and you press the button, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, but all the cogs were turning as they should uh, and the machine worked. Um, so we're delighted and are grateful to everybody who had got involved, the venues, the companies, uh, the supporters, um, all the, the O2H team. Um, and we're really delighted that people, whether you're an investor, uh, you work for government, you're a scientist or a resident, you got a chance to see what was happening um, in the O2H science and tech community. Well, there'll be so many conversations that are carrying on uh, as a result of today. So many, you know, there, you've got executive search, scientific search uh, teams looking recruitment at uh, recruitment. So many things will happen as a result of, this, of, of today and it'll be say, oh, do you remember that time O2H did that fantastic Cambridge Wide Open Day? Congratulations to you. And when do you get out the clean sheet of paper for Wide Open Day 2024? Uh, that work has already started. I thought it might have done. <laughs> we've, already, we've got so many lessons that we've learned um, in the last uh, three months of, of trying to put the inaugural event together. Um, and people are coming back to us already with good ideas and what they want to do next year. Um, and yeah, we hope to get more companies involved, more of Cambridge involved, and certainly more of, of the wider uh, Cambridge community involved in the Cambridge Wide Open Day. Well, it's, it's, I, I can't recommend it highly enough if you're listening to this from the Cambridge community. If you're elsewhere in the east of England and you haven't been to this year, shame, shame on you. 
come down and take part next year. Come down and explore because there's only things to learn. There's only things to, to uh, benefit all of us in the region and the country and the wider world. Prashant Shah, congratulations. We look forward already to, to 2024 and Eastern Promise will support you in that, whatever form it takes. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Congratulations to Prashant Shah and all at O2H Group for this truly fantastic peek inside the Cambridge ecosystem. Coming in fast, behind Cambridge Tech Week and February's Norwich Science Festival, it's a true delight to see these events showcasing the enormous talent and opportunity in our region. Each of these events, festivals and general outpourings of enthusiasm are fantastic showcases for the East of England and Eastern Promise will be here to showcase each of you in turn. And now... As I'm nothing if not responsive to my audience, I unlocked the Eastern Promise Suggestions box and sifted through your votes on future guests on upcoming episodes. And you certainly didn't disappoint. Join me now for listener's choice on this week's... Crowd Sorcery. Yes, crowd sorcery. First, let's run down the top choices of Stephen Wilson, Head of Innovation and Business Engagement at Freeport East. Says Stephen, so, so many, some of whom you may have featured before. René Vandermeerve, Andy Richards, Andy Williams, Gonzalo de Vasconcelos, Chris Lowe, Piers Ricketts, Catherine Chapman, Gerard Parr, and Vic Annals, brackets, if he hasn't left yet. Interesting SME entrepreneurs galore in the east of England too, like Toby Mills, Hao Zeng, and David Farron Jimenez. Thank you so much, Stephen. That's an amazing array of suggestions. And I'm actually quite pleased that only one of them, Professor Gerard Parr, has so far been a guest on Eastern Promise, leaving so many more available. I shall be looking up this list, and thanks to Stephen Wilson, all those on it have been forewarned. Next, I admire someone who is clear about what they want from life. And that description fits perfectly Rory Preston, principal and founder at Udemo and lead data scientist at Visible. Says Rory, You already know my request, Professor Simon Carding at Quadrum Institute in the Norwich Research Park. Pretty please? Now, I had the honour of visiting the NRP last week and meeting with Andrew Stronach, Head of Public Affairs at the QI. And you can rest assured, Rory, we will be looking into this as soon as possible. After all, you did ask nicely. Next up, Penny Bartram, Associate Strategy Director of Vice News and trustee at Norwich Film Festival. Says Penny, I feel like you'd have some interesting questions for the ex-Prime Minister in South West Norfolk. Now, I'd be totally up for that. Although it would need to be entirely within the Eastern Promise policy of positivity and opportunity. And somehow, the opportunity might be seen as missed by some. Penny has another suggestion. 
how about a trip to the Sainsbury Centre to touch some art? As the Sainsbury Centre for Visual Arts in Norwich is currently encouraging people to touch their exhibits. And, says Penny, maybe Chris Bosher of Bourne would be a good protagonist to talk through the creative strategy of the project. Chris tells us that he is up for that, as, indeed, am I. Let's do it. Let's go grab some art. Sorry. Uh, Scarpa. James Lee Burgess, FRSA, of Urban XR, suggests Michelle Sorrell to talk about her work on UK poverty at Save the Children and how valuable her lived experience has been to them and her in trying to address the most important issue facing the UK and the East. That's a fantastic suggestion. Thank you, James Lee Burgess. And if Michelle Sorrell is up for that, let's go for it. However, let me leave the last word to Clark Willis, MBE, who makes a very important point. A challenge, Mike Rigby. So many infamous people you've interviewed, all with a view and a position, but what about some next-generation young people, currently without a voice on their future? Interview them at Royal Norfolk Show on the first day, and we will show your interviews on the big screen at the Longacre Marquee on the main concourse, just before the Royal Norfolk Agricultural Association offices, at 10.45 on the second day of the show. Let's just all see what the young people of the East want us to give them for their Eastern promise, for their future, and for our grandchildren. Thank you, Clark. I am really looking forward to being part of that project. And that's it for episode 66 of Eastern Promise. I have been Mike Rigby, and we'll be so again next week in time for episode 67, when my guests will be Sam Burton of the University of East Anglia and Robin Milton of Fairer Games, who are joining us to tell of their experiences with Creative East's Create Growth programme, which is being delivered by the UEA. It then only remains for me to thank the Mayor of Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, Dr Nick Johnson, and Constance Anker of the CPCA, Jonathan Reynolds of the Opogy Group, Bruntwood SciTech and everyone I spoke to on Cambridge Wide Open Day. My thanks as ever to Engineer 49. People ask me what Engineer 49 does. Well, to put it simply, he solves problems I didn't know I had in ways I simply don't understand. And to you, thank you so much for spending time with me. So, from me to you, catch you next week. And bye for now. You can contact Eastern Promise and find out more about what we do by visiting our website, easternpromise.org.uk. Eastern Promise is a Priors Croft production on behalf of the Eastern Promise East Anglia Community Interest Company.